Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Brian Dangerfield and Theo Chapsalis. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you um, to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And if anyone wanted to send in a question for me to ask the Bondcasters, please email us at bondcast at natwest.com. Okay, let's kick things off this week with a little bit of a different discussion to where we normally start things on Bondcast. But since we have Brian with us this week, I thought it would make sense to kind of touch on his expertise um, and his kind of topics of interest, um, which is oil, um, given that we had some headlines over the weekend of the OPEC meeting breaking down and we could go into a little bit of discussion about what what this really means and uh, I guess what what it means for markets. So Brian, perhaps you could start just by giving us a bit of a background around the uh, kind of meeting itself, the deal and what actually happened and why it broke down. Well, great. Thank you very much for having me once again. So um, if we think about OPEC, we can really break down the nations within OPEC into kind of two distinct groups. There's those that want to remain ultra cautious on raising oil supply because of concerns to the outlook, whether it be Delta variant or otherwise. That's mainly led by Saudi Arabia. In fact, you could say Saudi Arabia is really the only major player that's decisively in that camp. And then you have those that want to raise production faster to try and take advantage of the fact that prices have reached new post uh, sort of post pandemic highs. Um, that includes Russia and uh, a number of others, and in particular the UAE, and we'll talk about their role in a second. But when we think about OPEC, we really have to think about those two competing desires. There's the desire to keep production increases going slowly so that prices can remain supported. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's also a desire to have um, production increase more quickly so that countries can take advantage. excuse me, take advantage of uh, higher prices and try and fight back for market share. So we've had monthly meetings for OPEC now for the past year, and OPEC has generally been quite slow in returning oil to the market, where Saudi Arabia in particular has really dominated the conversation, basically saying, okay, we need to slow play this recovery. We can't risk simply increasing oil production very quickly because the recovery is still quite fragile. Coming into July, there was an expectation that OPEC would agree to increase production by 400, production quotas, I should say, by 400,000 barrels per month for each of the final five months of the year, August through December. So that would account for 2 million barrels per day increase, which is you know significant, but done over a course of a couple of months was actually quite small. So that was Saudi Arabia saying, hey, we need to stay cautious. We can't just assume that the economies are going to continue to recover at this very strong clip. The same time, I think the Saudis and OPEC are cognizant that at any time, really, there could be an Iran deal that gets completed. And if that happens, um, then all of a sudden you have the possibility of a significant increase in Iranian oil returning to the market. So, you know, not wanting to get too far ahead of the possibility of a major increase in oil supply coming from Iran. And so it looked like there was a deal in place to, again, confirm this slow increase in oil production. What instead happened was there was an, uh, an objection from the UAE. What they basically said was, 
our spare capacity has risen and therefore it is unfair that our production increases are based off of a low baseline. So baselines for increases are based off of a, a level back from 2018. I think for most OPEC nations, we can say with confidence, but not certainty that spare capacity has probably fallen. So having a higher baseline is actually a good thing because if your spare capacity has fallen, you still have the flexibility to increase. For the UAE in particular, where spare capacity has almost certainly risen since that time, they basically say it's unfair to hold us to a lower baseline when we could increase a lot faster. So they essentially uh, rejected the parameters on those lines. And what has happened since is we don't have an agreement. This really harkens back to the days of last year. Last time we had a breakdown in OPEC, uh, back in April of last year, the results were quite literally catastrophic. We had negative oil prices, uh, at least for a, a day back in April. But the conditions are, of course, much different now, right? We're talking about whether or not to raise oil supplies because the economic outlook has been so strong. Back in that time, we were talking about should they be cutting supplies dramatically because the oil demand outlook was so unbelievably weak? So it's a different set of drivers, but it is still um, you know, injecting some uncertainty into the minds of traders where you have this possibility, hey, if the OPEC deal breaks down completely, then all of a sudden it could be a free for all where all these economies are trying to boost oil production as fast as possible. So in the near term, the breakdown is certainly a positive it means that we default to no supply increases for August, despite the economy being quite hot and oil markets being in, uh, quite tight. But there's still this overarching question, which is if you have a high profile breakdown like this, does that mean that the overall outlook should be more negative because you have the possibility of the deal going away? So there's a lot of moving parts at the moment, uh, but I think the, the outcome is still a positive uh, for oil in the near term. What kind of a timeline are we, uh, perhaps this is a bit of an impossible question to answer, but what kind of a timeline are you looking at to really have more clarity on whether this is a complete breakdown or not? So this next month is going to be very important because OPEC was making decisions on July 1st that apply to August and later. That means that they still have the entire month to potentially iron out the uh, iron out the disagreement. It's certainly possible that by the end of this month, that the original agreement that was rejected is ultimately approved and that August uh, barrels are shifted as hoped, or sorry, as planned before the breakdown. So that's certainly possible we'll be watching over the next month. Going longer term, the OPEC agreement as a whole is currently through March of 2022. So if you have continued breakdowns, continued disagreements, it's certainly possible that in March of 2022, the agreement is no longer ratified. And so therefore you could enter the scenario where there's no longer an agreement between OPEC and Russia and others. So looking over the next month in particular to see how this current iteration um, of the deal evolves, uh, but more long-term, there's a question of, will the deal break down or will it be extended past its natural end date uh, next year? So those are the dates we'll be watching. So I guess thinking more near term than let's say over the next month, um, do you have a kind of price level that you're looking to in oil or um, the kind of trajectory of, of the shift in price that, that you might be thinking about? Well, I certainly think prices above $80 a barrel in the near term are, are within reach here. Um, the market is quite tight at the moment and you have 
and you know certainly expectations of OPEC adding barrels to the market do not look like they're coming to fruition. We have demand growth that is still quite positive across the world. Now the big risk to that is likely the Delta variant. And as we know, to the extent that reduces demand for travel, that's gonna have an impact uh, on energy. And it also, if it has an impact on demand, particularly in Asia, as you've seen increased lockdowns, that is a risk. But right now we still have an oil environment where supply is quite tight um, and demand is still very strong. And so I think the uh, price outlook in the near term is positive. I think you could certainly see a move above $80 a barrel um, over the next few months as this has kind of worked out. How does that play out for other markets then? I'm happy. I know this is Bondcast, but happy for you to touch on FX markets as well if, if it's more relevant there. But how are you kind of thinking about this, I guess, then in, in the wider markets? Sure. So I'll just start quickly on FX. It's very clear that oil exporters will love this. Oil importers will have a tougher time. But, you know, from a kind of 30,000 foot down perspective, higher oil prices are a big driver of whether inflation is transitory or is it going to stay relevant for longer. And as we know, gasoline prices are something that is very important and very relevant, both from a political perspective and from a monetary policy perspective. And so to the extent that gasoline prices, fuel prices stay high, energy prices stay high, that could create political pressures um, as well. And so as we think about economies approaching the point of either pulling back on accommodation or tightening, oil prices are going to play a role in that. Um, certainly, you've seen that across emerging markets. You've seen a number of emerging market economies have been essentially forced into rate hikes because of high inflation. Gas prices and food prices really the culprit there. Um, and then you also have the possibility. We think about the Fed and emerging market, excuse me, developed market central banks. You know, the questions of whether or not inflation is going to be transitory or whether it's going to stay persistently higher for longer. Oil prices and developments in oil are certainly going to play a role in that obviously has huge implications for, for real rates and for uh, future policy. And so to the extent, you know, oil has uh, plenty of different, um, it feeds into a number of different markets, it feeds into a number of different outlooks and it feeds into the real economy in a very clear way. Uh, and so the trajectory for oil is super important from a, a, not just from an FX perspective for the exporters like Canada or the importers like India, but for, for global markets as well. Yeah, something to watch quite closely, I guess, over the um, coming weeks and months. All right, so <clears throat> thanks, Brian. Over to um, Europe then, where um, I guess there's two kind of key topics in what is otherwise a quiet week this week, starting with today's news. And when I say today, we are recording this on Wednesday. So um, I guess the kind of headline news, although not supermarket moving, was that we got the uh, updated European Commission's forecasts. Um, they revised up their growth forecasts, but are still um, below where we have our base case at NatWest Markets. So what's the kind of um, convergence trend there, do you think, Giles? Like, is it just a matter of a few months before they're revising up their forecasts again? Do we still think they're being much, well, not much too conservative because they've now raised them much closer to our forecast for 2021, but there's clearly some further upward pressures, we think. That's right. You know, I think my hope and expectation is that um, forecasts 
from you know, all kinds of institutions, including multilateral ones like the EC, will be in will will be raised over the the, co the course of the next few well, I guess weeks and months. Um, now we have GDP growth for the euro area at uh, zero point sorry five percent. Uh, for 2021 and accelerating in 2022 to 5.8%. I think that is a that's a pretty big difference, actually, uh, particularly that acceleration compared to most people's expectations. Now, I think what's holding people back, you know, one is just the frequency, I think, I think with which um, Know, people actually look again and, and report their, their changes of views. So you know, it may it may just be that people need to you know, hit F nine on their spreadsheet and get the get the new number and 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 and, uh, and then tell people about it. Um, yeah, I think that there's also been, <clears throat> I, I guess. You know, pe people are still a little bit nervous about COVID, of course, and you know, we we can see the numbers. You know, getting worse again uh, around a number of countries in in Europe, and so I think you know, people probably are keeping in some so, some kind of downside skew to their you know, their risk assessment in those forecasts. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about that last week on on the podcast in the context, but especially of the UK, where again um, infections are continuing to rise quite. Quite quickly, um, you know, particularly in some of the northern northern regions. Um, but the the overall assessment of you know what the linkage between um, infections and hospitalizations and of course then uh, mortalities, you know, that that change looks fairly robust from the you know the extra week of data that we've had since then. So things are significantly better. And, you know, I think that actually you should be thinking about COVID as a as more of a symmetrical risk. I mean, you know, yes, there are certainly, you know, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we will probably have some, you know, some difficult decisions to be made on the, on the political side. And those may may work, um, at least from an economic perspective. Um, now that, of course, is the whole point of open, reopening. Um, but you know, they may also um, you know, be forced into, you know, to, to backtrack further down the line. Now, you know, I, I, I think that markets are focusing on the, back, the risk of backtracking much more than they're f focused on the risk of actually um, the possibility of living with COVID being a realistic one. So I think that that's a, a more symmetric one. I think that over the next couple of months, we should see... Um, we should see people raising their their forecasts for for growth, and I think that that will um, yeah, put us back on the right track for for you know, towards higher rates and other things. With that, then let's switch over to you, Theo, because um, I guess in a sort of otherwise quite well. Actually, first let's talk about the market moves because we haven't addressed those yet on this podcast, but we've had some fairly sizable rallies in fixed income over the. The last couple of days um, and I think you have some thoughts on some kind of technical things that are going on in in the UK that are perhaps contributing to, to the moves that we're seeing so can you um, enlighten us as to what those technical thoughts are? <laughs> okay I guess first of all uh, anything which is technical is is, is, is it lies between um, you know between science and art so it's really hard to just strictly end and 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 you know, provide a bulletproof justify to that. So what is going on is really that we've triggered 
specific levels um, and we've triggered um, specific points where the guild futures um, used to have or yields used to have face resistance. Um, and, and basically what we see now is that uh, we've broken through those levels and we do have a market where from the momentum point of view, momentum buyers, momentum chasers, all those trend followers uh, are actually going to be buying guilds. So th this is one point. The other point that we've seen is a very strong performance of the future sector. So when we look specifically at the future sector and how that relates to other parts of the curve, those dynamics indicate strong buying of futures. So 10 years, particularly expensive relative to fives and, 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 and 15s. Last, I think that it has to do also with fear with regards to coupon money, coupon money and um, extensions. And this is, this is a topic that we did highlight as a potential risk. Um, but, you know, we did not expect this, uh, obviously, to happen to that extent so much. Now, this technical buying is not just a UK-specific story. You can see that, to a large extent, technical buying is happening in the US as well. And the, uh, the arguments and the charts are very, very similar. Um, but all in all, it shows that there is indeed support for back and fixed income and that there may be momentum, there may be some near-term momentum behind this buying, which, you know, does, is, has the underlying narrative changed? No, but there is this buying and we cannot ignore it. This is why, for example, uh, we did have a bearish trade and we did have a bearish view at the very back end of the UK curve. Uh, well, uh, that view is something that uh, we've taken out simply because of, of, of what's going on. So there is, this technical buying, which in the absence of really strong other arguments, it means that uh, there is support for fixed income, at least in the short term. Okay, and moving away, I guess, from immediate kind of markets in, in the very near term, um, the other, well, one of the other themes in the UK this week was that the OBR published their fiscal risk piece, which is something that they publish um, every two years, if I'm not mistaken. So what was, um, I guess, the main themes or what was the kind of special about this particular uh, version of the publication? Sure. So first of all, starting with 2017, um, the OBR has been mandated to provide a fiscal risks piece uh, every two years in July. And this becomes relevant because in 2017, the first time that this piece came out, it made a very strong case against the issuance of more linkers. This was taken into consideration by the UK DMO and issuance indeed slowed down in the coming years. Now, the special part about this edition is that it really, instead of focusing on a variety of risks, it looks at three very specific risks. It looks at, at uh, the coronavirus, the pandemic, the impact of the pandemic. It looks at, um, you know, climate change and to what extent this can be and will be significant. And last but not least, it looks at debt sustainability, debt dynamics, and to what extent the existing level of debt can provide a fiscal problem. So it is different, the composition is different, the themes are different, and it wants also to be more, more realistic in the sense of not just to look uh, potential or you know, imaginary risk, but really to look at more um, immediate risk that could uh, show up in the next decade. 
So, well, perhaps I could have touched on climate change as well if if we'd had a bit more time um, on uh, when we were talking about the strategic review. But that's probably a whole podcast in and of itself of what what the ECB could do uh, with regard to climate change and, and what changes the strategic review might bring about. But um, perhaps you could just give us a bit more detail on what what the OBR was saying about the kind of risks of climate change. I guess as well um, in light of the fact that we recently had the. Uh, uh, green bond standards for the UK um, published a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. So in summary, we need to act now rather than delay action or not act. Otherwise, if we do not act, there is a scenario of debt to GDP reaching almost 300% at the end of the century. So this is one. The other point is really that we need to make sure that you know everybody embraces and everybody is serious about um, zero net emissions by 2050. Uh, and that if we deviate from that or if we delay that, it will have negative implications with regards to, uh, to debt sustainability. So there are, there are merits and there are reasons other than climate itself to take action. If we do not, then we should factor in more events, more environmental events that will trigger ad hoc fiscal action and fiscal spending, which will end up be a lot, a lot, a lot costlier. All right. I think I say this with everything we talk about, but that is definitely something that we will be returning to on the pod and, and talking about a lot. And like I said, um, something that is an important pillar of the ECB strategic review as well, which we didn't touch on today, but I'm sure we will in coming weeks. All right, guys, so I guess we'll leave it there for this week then. Um, just a reminder to all of our listeners that um, if you like today's episode, then please hit the like button to show your appreciation and click subscribe so that you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And also, if you do have any questions, please email them in to bondcast at natwest.com. Thanks, everyone.